I would like to pray, and I've also decided that I'm going to read uh, the entire 13th chapter of Nehemiah, so if you want to find your way there as well. Um, uh, we do need to pray that prayer. Lord, speak to us. Even through this, seems like a strange passage, but I believe that God does have some things here for us as we conclude our series on Nehemiah. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts do long for you to speak to us. We have a lot of noise in our world, a lot of messages, a lot of information that just comes flooding our way. But Lord, how we need to so desperately to hear the still, small voice of you, our God, that we might take your word that has been delivered unto us, Lord, once for all, that your scriptures that have been inspired by your Holy Spirit, God breathed, we pray, Lord, that these this portion of your word, Lord, help us to see the significance of what you would like us to know from it, that we be, Lord, not only humbled by it, but made aware of the fact that we are to be patient with others as you are patient with us, and to see that you are at work in making us more like Christ through the power of your spirit and through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Again, if you want to follow along, it's on page 596 in your pew Bible. I'm going to read chapter 13 of Nehemiah, the last chapter of the book. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses on the hearing of the people, in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it, no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it came about that when they had heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now prior to this, Eliashib, the, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. And after some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it was very displeasing to me and I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. And then I gave an order that they cleanse the rooms and returned where the utensils of the house of God with the grain and offerings and the frankincense. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And in charge of the storehouses I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. In addition to them was Hanan the son of Zucker, the son of Mataniah, and they were considered reliable. And it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out, blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for this house, for my God, a house of my God and its services. 
In those days I saw in Judah some of those who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing its sacks of grain and loading them with donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. And then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath of Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came about just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. And then I stationed some of my servants at the gates and that no load should enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. And then I warned them and I said, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. And for this also, remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And as for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. And so I contended with them, and cursed them, and struck some of them, and pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, You shall not give your daughters to the son, to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you? that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign, foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joida, the son of Elishib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite, so I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and for the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Now, if we're going to make sense of this chapter of Nehemiah, it's important that we understand a timeline of how all this fits together and understand the larger context. If you understand the book, you understand that Nehemiah was at one time a cupbearer, and he was stationed far, far away in Persia. And he left there. He came and served 12 years in Jerusalem, rebuilding, making sure the wall was back in place, and rebuilding the people. 12 years. Then he returns and goes back to Persia, and he's there for at least several years. And now in this text, he has come back uh, after about uh, 15 or 16 years later. And during this time of his departure, the reforms that he had put in place, in which he addressed so many issues within the, the, the people of God there in the city of Jerusalem, he had put these things in place, and now while he's gone, they have gone off track. 
They have completely come off the rails. Many of the same compromising issues that he addressed earlier in chapter 10 needed to be addressed again. Issues pertaining to intermarriage with idolatrous pagans. It's not the fact, that, again, that these people are looking at everyone who's different from them as if they are somehow superior. These are spiritual reasons that God had making sure they don't compromise into idolatrous ways of the, of the pagan people around them. He's concerned about Sabbath observance. He's concerned about the temple tax and the tithe for the provision of the temple, basic elements of their devotion to their God. And here in this final chapter of Nehemiah, we come in the Hebrew Bible to the final chapter of the Old Testament. That's it. We just read it. And how does it end? Well, it doesn't end on a very uh, wonderful note, it would seem. It ends on a sense of a sobering note. It basically is saying that what we learn from this last chapter is that God's people still struggle with sin. That we've not arrived, that we are in process. That as soon as we think we've got ourselves in some measure of improvement in some area of our life, we find there's another area that we're going to find a struggle in and a need to be changed and reformed. You see, the heart issues of God's people need to be addressed again and again. Time after time, none of us or none of God's people at any time in redemptive history, while in this world, have reached a place where they have said, listen, we've stopped struggling against sin. Nobody has arrived in this world. We all are desperately in need of a Savior every day. And what they need here and what this text is pointing us to, clearly it's pointing ahead to the promise of the new covenant, of a Savior who is coming, thank God He did come. They're promising, it's pointing ahead that we all need a Redeemer who can break the chains of sin that so easily entangle us. That we all are in need of the Holy Spirit who can replace our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh and help us work through the hard issues of what it means to love God and love our fellow man. So if you read anything in this text, in this last chapter of Nehemiah, I want us to sort of glean from it some principles or some helpful insights about what it can teach us about ministry. Because all of us are privileged to be a part of ministry to each other and ministry within the context of the local church. And so there's one-on-one -on -one discipleship principles here, it seems to me. And one of the big takeaways that we get from this final chapter of the Old Testament is that we are to keep on loving the people that we know, that we have called our brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we are to never lose sight of the fact that all of us, ourselves included, and they as well, all of us are in process. We have not arrived. We are still being sanctified if we have been justified, that is, we've come to faith in Christ and we have been made alive in Christ and made right with God through Jesus Christ on the base of faith, then we are now entering into a process by which we are being made more and more like Christ. We're in process. And therefore, we are called to be involved in the lives of our fellow believers, our brothers and sisters, helping to steer them towards spiritual maturity. And one of the important components of person-to-person -person discipleship one-on-one -on -one discipleship within the context of the local church. It involves the addressing of heart issues of each other in a way in which we do it compassionately. We do it 
in a sense of appropriately measured, in a balanced way, of course, in a biblical way, and with loving correction. Now, all of those descriptive terms I just used are very important. We're not talking about, in a very angry and cynical way, just pointing out everybody's fault, and that's all we do, become the chief critic. That's not what this text is all about. And I hope you'll see why as we work through the text. Let's look at two overall principles regarding loving correction taught in this last chapter. First of all, the gospel of grace promotes persistence in loving correction. Did you catch that in this text? That not once, not twice, but three or four times we find the word, I reprimanded this one. Verse 11, I reprimanded the officials. Verse 17, I reprimanded the nobles. Verse 21, I warned others there. In verse 25, I contended with them. After all these years of ministry that Nehemiah had invested, he had zeal for God's glory. It was evident in all of what he was seeking to do among the people there before he went back to Persia. Here he says, I'm not going to just sit there and take it easy in my life of, in a sense, maybe retirement life. No, he comes back here. He returns to Jerusalem after all the being away for a dozen years, and he takes on and tackles some serious problems that are going on that nobody else apparently was going to tackle. He confronts various forms of worldliness that had crept into the habits and lifestyles of the people of God there in Jerusalem. Now hear me carefully here. Please, I urge you, don't draw the wrong conclusion about Nehemiah. If you're here for the first time and you're just now hearing Nehemiah and we read this text, if, you, if that's all you know about him, please don't, don't draw the full picture of his life based on this. You've got to understand him based on the previous 12 chapters of the book because Nehemiah was not a rude, contentious, control freak. And when you read this chapter real quickly through one time, that, you can easily draw that conclusion, can't you? Somebody that just goes crazy because he doesn't think things are going right. But if you take it as a whole, I think it's fair to say that Nehemiah was a leader who cared about the glory of God. And he cared also about the growth and godliness of his fellow Jews, of the fellow people of God. Now, admittedly, his actions may shock some of us, and they do. We have our modern sensibilities. But I believe that if you understand them in their accurate context, particularly for that society, it paints a portrait of a godly man, a man whose heart truly was deeply grieved over things that were offensive to God, and he is going to step in and he is going to be a change agent in loving correction. Now, you say a oh, verse 25 is a real problematic verse here. I mean, come on, this guy, he has just come off the rails himself. He is out of control. Let me just clarify a couple things. When it says that he announced curses, it does not mean that he is using profanity. If that's what you're hearing it say, that's not correct. More likely, the word there literally means he dishonored them. He is revealing them for who they really are. And more importantly, I think it might allude to the fact that he is probably reminding them of the curses that were involved in the covenant. That is, there's blessings if you obey, there's curses if you disobey. He's reminding them of, listen here, because of all of the history of seeing how God's people have gone down, 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 because they have not followed the covenant ways, he says, I'm reminding you, these are the consequences that are going to come. Also, I've been in my reading in the background here, the pulling of hair when done in public was a sort of a 
a shaming ritual. It was done as a formal ceremony in a way in which it symbolically sort of exposed people by saying you're doing something that's very inappropriate and unacceptable. It wasn't a person who was out of control. It was a person who was conveying to them in ways that say, listen, there's compromise going on all over here. And he says there needs to be no longer accommodation of sinful patterns. We need to, we need to stand up and say what? Here's a man who is not given over to being passive when he sees things that are dishonoring to God. It's a man of great holy courage. In some ways, I'm jealous of him. It's one of my areas of weakness sometimes. I wish I was more active and more willing to take on and confront situations that need to be confronted. Here's Nehemiah. He didn't pause to reflect upon how popular his bold actions would be among the citizens there. He had a passion for godliness. He has a passion for devotion to the Word of God that prompted him to take a stand against things that seemed to become normalized. Everybody was doing it. It's no big deal. We just go on with these things. And the swift currents that are now beginning to flood over the people of God, he's standing up against them and saying, listen, no more. I'm refusing to tolerate sin among the people of God. Now, we understand people who don't know God, they don't have an allegiance to Jesus Christ. So we understand that their lives are going to be filled with all sorts of compromise in many different areas of their life. But if among the people of God who are claiming that they have done so, which they did earlier in the book, saying, hey, I'm one of those, I am, I am committed to this, then he says, listen, here, I need to make you aware of how inappropriate this is. He also, what? He doesn't just play favorites and pick on the little guys. He does what? He takes on those who had the responsibility for the oversight of what was going on there. He does not tolerate wrong, and he's not going to tolerate people in leadership who condone the doing of wrong. And that's important. He steps in, he confronts them, he takes steps to make sure it's right. And who, would, who similarly followed in those steps and became the ultimate prophet who would speak the truth and confronted those who were doing wrong, no matter how powerful, no matter how impressive they were in their spiritual garb? No, none, none other than Jesus Christ. He comes into the temple complex and he comes and he takes that situation and says, this is unacceptable. This is meant to be a house of prayer. And it says that right after that in John chapter 2, we read that zeal for his father's house consumed him. He couldn't contain it. It was so despicable in his eyes what was going on when he saw corruption and saw things that were clearly done in dishonoring to the Word of God and to the God who wrote His Word. Now, how do we take this down to where we live every day? Well, I'd like to make some applications here where appropriate, and we need to put the shoes on where they do fit, I guess. But first of all, I would just say, in terms of applying this, I would just like to suggest that most of us who have been parents or who are parents, we're in a position where these are some very helpful principles for us. Many times we can say, well, I have good intentions on raising my children. I want my children to, uh, to grow up to be uh, good citizens. I want them to grow up to be people who know and follow God. But in reality, most of us as mothers and fathers, we dread those inconvenient interruptions that seem to always occur in our day-to-day -day life in which something that our children have said or done is calling out for our attention to correct them to help them understand that's not acceptable, that's not appropriate, 
that's clearly something that's out of line. And the danger is we oftentimes are tempted to what? Overlook it. We tolerate it. We sort of just go on with what we're doing, act as if we didn't hear it or didn't see it. After a while, our kids figure out that mom and dad clearly are lowering the standards based on what they're tolerating, what they're allowing. And those standards, if they continue to hear the Word of God, they'll realize don't match up to what the Scriptures teach. And so I think it's fair to say that there's not a day that goes by, I'm sure that all of us who have been parents or who are parents, you don't observe some serious breach of biblical standards in your kids. And again, I would suggest most of us, many times, nine times out of ten, maybe seven times out of ten, five times out of ten, whatever it is, we just sort of tell them to stop it. And we refuse to take steps to admonish and correct, to chastise, to instruct our children calmly with appropriate ways of speaking into their life, of responding to them. Because why? Because it's a hassle. I'm too busy. There are other things I'm trying to do here. And so it is an interruption. I understand it. I've been there. We've I've been this, down this road many a time. And so we don't want to face the fearful prospect also, and this is a very serious modern uh, problem, it seems to me. I don't think my parents nor my grandparents struggled with this issue as much as apparently this generation does. And that is that they're, they, one of the reasons they don't face this prospect of, of correcting our children in a loving and appropriate way is because we don't want to face a moment of our child's displeasure and our child's disapproval of us which reveals, of course, a heart that is idolatrous, that is worshiping our children, trying to please our children more so than we are trying to honor God. And so we tend to pacify or pamper them if we're not careful. All the while, we've lowered the standards of righteousness. And so again, I want to speak again as a person who has failed in this area and who had, has had to learn the hard way through one error after another. God has been gracious to me. But one helpful way is to prepare our children to receive the gospel by pointing out to them where they have gone wrong and to bring yourself into the situation, remind them, I too have done the same thing and still do. I myself still do wrong before God. It's helpful for children to understand that parents are explaining things to them as we all need a Savior. Help revealing their heart to show that, yes, we have hearts that are exposed by the holy standards of God. We all are falling short in so many ways. And after that, we then point out the need that, yes, we need a Savior. And God in His love has provided a Savior to us. A Savior who sees us in all of our wickedness, in our hearts that are rebellious. And He has not turned away from us, but He turns toward us in love and compassion. Providing us forgiveness through His Son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place. I would just again suggest, as you look through this passage on Nehemiah, it's amazing to me how he just went from one issue to another issue to another issue. And you would have thought after a while, he said, okay, enough of this already. Let's take a break. But he just keeps going. And I would just again say, by God's grace, notice that Nehemiah addressed many different types of issues. Same is true with those of us who have a moral influence with those around us, is that persistence and consistency are so essential. If our kids are to be held to any kind of standards of right and wrong, that standard ought to be the same every day. 
children who have different standards and different enforcements of those standards any given day or any given week become confused and they become very angry and annoyed with that. They don't know what to expect that particular day or week. And this idea of alternating, depending on our mood, depending on the pace of our schedule, is very confusing for children. And it's never obviously convenient to lovingly discipline and correct our children. It is an interruption, no question about it, but it's a divine appointment. It is where ministry comes into everyday life. It is where we have opportunity to speak into our children's lives in ways that are redeeming. Yes, we can always find more enjoyable things to do than confront wrong. But I go back and I read 1 Corinthians 13, and what does it remind us about the nature of love? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It does not just tolerate it and think it's a wonderful thing when it goes on. Love never fails, which means love does not give up. Thank God, love does not give up. Love does not throw its hands up and sit back and say, well, kids, I guess you're not going to catch it this week, so don't worry about it. Let's just forget about all this. But love will confront. Love will correct. Love will counsel again and again and again as needed. I think about my own English learning, learning the English language. My dear mother has been very consistent with that. Every time I hear any kind of improper English grammar, I hear my mother's voice echoing in my mind. That's not right. And she will then give me the correct, appropriate uh, verb that agrees with the pronoun or whatever. And I can remember hearing those things in my head again and again and again to the point where that's the way I hear it. That's the way it naturally comes out. And I'm thankful for that. How much better is it that we have times where we hear our parents and as we as parents address our children repeating the same thing again to them until they understand this is not something that is, is going to be ignored. They understand that we do love them. I'm so thankful that as a loving Heavenly Father, God does not give up on His children. Children that are slow to learn. <laughs> children that struggle with sin. Children like you and me who oftentimes take our ears and put our fingers in our ears and say, I don't want to hear you more of that, and we don't want to deal with things in our lives sometimes. And God lovingly keeps coming back as we continue to read His Word, as we continue to interact with other believers, as we continue to have opportunities for the Holy Spirit to work in us. He does not give up on us. As a wise and caring gardener, He carefully prunes those branches that are connected to the vine in order to what? Not destroy us, but to make us more fruitful. Make us more like Christ. He chastens his children, Hebrews chapter 12 says, in order to bring about a greater fruitfulness of the peaceable fruit of righteousness. I find that a good analogy for ministry is this kind of agricultural thought about gardening. It's not like baking cookies. You know, baking cookies, which I tend to enjoy doing, actually. There's something wrong with me, but I do enjoy that. But it, you throw all these ingredients into a bowl. I'm blessed with a mixer that is quite powerful, so it can mix it up for me. You basically scoop them out, put them on the pan, you cook them, boom, boom, we're done. Don't even have to ice them. I mean, they're finished. Product ready to go. Discipleship does not work like that. It is not just throw a bunch of ingredients in there, do a one-time thing, and boom, you're done. 
It's more like gardening. Gardening, you do what? You take a plant, you prepare the soil, you put the plant in the soil, and then what? A long list of things we got to do here. We got to keep water, adequate water here. We got to make sure they get enough fertilizer. We got to make sure that we prune it if we need to ever so often. We have to make sure we're weeding. Yuck, I hated that job, weeding. How many of you like to weed? Are you kidding me? Okay. All right. Uh, well, yes, it's, it's needed. It's helpful. It does feel good when it's done, but I don't enjoy the process of weeding. But anyway, um, it requires ongoing, continuous care and effort invested in the plant. And as, and as there are some plants, even in their process of growing and vitality, they need to be propped up. It's tomatoes that need to be held up as they continue to grow higher, taller, and taller. It's the vine uh, that you grow grapes on needs to be held up with the arbor. It, 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 there are different things that need to be propped up. And so in ministry, it's true that as you have life-on-life -life ministry involvement with other people, where you really talk into their lives, you listen to what's really going on and what's happening with them, and you begin to sense that there's an area of their life they're not dealing with very well. There's an opportunity that opens up for us to what? To speak into their lives, to offer a word of encouragement, and to also offer a word of challenge to them, to say, you know, you might want to rethink what you're doing about this. Sounds like you really have made things worse by responding in this way instead of this way. The opportunity to give, be teaching each other, to exhort each other, encouraging each other, correcting each other, rebuking as needed, and instructing each other. Isn't that really what parents are doing too? Again, it's not like baking cookies where you just throw things together and then you zip, zip, we're done. It's like, you know, put your kid on that bus in kindergarten, you know, and tearfully you, you, you're tearing up, they're tearing up, see you later, you know, and you think to yourself, oh, I'm all done now with parenting. Whew, they got in the kindergarten. It's, uh, it's finished. No, you don't think that way at all. It requires tremendous amount of ongoing ministry and teaching and correction. The same is true of those who are biblical leaders and overseers of the local church. Throughout church history, there have been these cycles of revival where, where the people of God respond well, and there are times where people are following God and they have a heart for Him, and there's a sense of great blessing and holiness among the people of God, and that's followed by times of complacency, times of compromise. And the shepherds of God's flock are called to correct and lovingly discipline those who embrace error, others who are conforming to the world, buying into the, the, the thinking of, God, of, of those who have not followed the scriptures. The shepherds of God's flock are vigilantly on the lookout for worldly thinking like materialism, where people are now beginning to say, money has become more important to me than God, or the things that money can buy are more important to me than God, or relativism, where they reject absolute moral truth and moral standards and everything is sort of gray or pluralism which tends to want to pick from this one and this one and this one and all these different systems and try to make them into what they think works best for them God's people are called to be separated unto him and therefore we are to be different from the world's system we're to think differently we're to act differently now, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, and I'm not suggesting that's what we think the standard should be. But the temptation over time is to water down doctrine until we achieve some sort of unity that really doesn't involve much depth at all. It's always been a danger for the church. 
And like Nehemiah, the church needs courageous leaders who will take a stand for biblical truth, who will confront those people who speak perverse things and draw away disciples. That continues to happen in our day. Acts 20 is where Paul was saying this to the elders. He says, listen here, we got to make sure you speak the truth because there's always a tendency people are being drawn away into the world. And Paul concludes that occasion with his fellow elders there, weeping with them as he says goodbye to them. And he says this, We must be on the alert, persistently admonishing each one with tears. We don't do it in a cold-hearted way. We don't do it as if we have arrived and we don't have to have that kind of encouragement in our own hearts. No, we do it with great sense of love and care for their souls. That is such a beautiful picture of what parenting is and what leadership in the church ought to be. May God help us. May God help us. Secondly, I'd like us just to consider briefly here that the gospel of grace promotes proper motives. And this is key. Motives, the right motivation for loving correction. I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, some people may say, well, I don't know, reading through this text, it didn't look like Nehemiah's motives seemed very noble or commendable. As a matter of fact, some of you noticed there in verses 8 and 9, he had this interaction regarding Tobiah, this guy who had taken up residence within the temple. If you know anything about this Tobiah guy, he was an enemy, uh, one of the opponents of building of the wall. He clearly is someone who had no business uh, being in there, number one. Number two, that was not the purpose of this room. It was been rented out, in a sense, by somebody who was clearly compromising in a major way to make this into an apartment. It was designed to be a place of storage for all of these things that helped maintain the temple. And so some people wonder, well, is this, when Nehemiah gets on the scene, is he just bitter over what Tobiah had said to him earlier, back when he was making fun of them when they are building the wall? No, I believe the real reason that Nehemiah took the decisive action regarding all these compromising practices was not to get even. I would strongly suggest to you it was to honor God. Four times we notice in the chapter 13, that Nehemiah is lifting his heart to God in prayer. Did you notice that? There it is, verse 14, verse 22, verse 29, verse 31. Remember me, O God. Remember these people, O God. In other words, he's doing these things with a sense of God's concern. He's concerned about God, noticing what's going on here and being aware of his actions that he's taking. He's calling upon God to consider them. Most of the people of his day don't understand his motives. And so he's yearning for God to see that, Lord, I'm trying to be on your agenda here. I'm trying to make sure your agenda is moving forward here. He has a heart's longing for the holiness of life among the people of God. Now, please hear me here carefully. If all you're hearing to me say today is, well, we need to be more direct with people and I need to put them in their place. And the quicker I do it, the better. And the more direct I do it, the better. And I need to grab them by their... No, I'm not saying that. I would like to suggest to you, before you have an opportunity to speak into somebody's life regarding some area of compromise that is a significant issue in that person's life, may I ask you, first of all, examine your own heart. And you better think twice, four times, maybe ten times. Why are you going to do this? What's your motive? Why are you about to say what you're going to say? Are you motivated for the right reasons? 
Are you just trying to get your own way, make life easier? Are you just trying to impress other people? Are you trying to do it because you're resentful and you're going to put this person back in the place that they belong in because they said it to you a while ago and you're still smarting from that? No, if we're to honor God, we have to open ourselves up to the fact that I need to be open to making sure what? Get the log out of your own eye first before you try to attempt to try to help remove the speck from your brother's eye. So there's a sense of humility and self-examination that needs to precede all this. And then Matthew 18 is very clear, is that we have to follow biblical guidelines and how we deal with people. We go and seek them out individually. We don't talk about them. We talk to them and deal with them directly. And for God-honoring reasons. I find it very interesting that Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Some of you are still not on board here and you say, well, I don't feel comfortable doing this. You've just, you've lost me here. I'm not, I don't see this is, this is something I ever could do because I just don't have, I'm not brave enough and not bold enough. Listen to what Paul said. This is to, written to the whole church. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Admonish the unruly. He's saying within the church there, there are people who are undisciplined. They're really not living the life they should be living. They're just lazy perhaps i think some of them were not working he was saying listen the lord's coming and they're saying okay well i'm just gonna sit and quit my job and sit up on my roof and wait for christ to come and so there were people who were doing nothing not disciplined at all and so paul says admonish them speaks to the church not just to the leadership encourage the faint-hearted so here's a person that's about ready to give up you speak differently to that person your approach to them is to lift them up if there's a person who's weak, he says, you help them. You come alongside them and help bear that load with them because they can't bear it anymore. They're about ready to give up. And then he says, be patient with all men. I love that. Be patient with everybody. That is, don't give up on them. Keep with them. Don't, don't walk alongside with them for a while. Don't just say, I'm just going to go and give you one shot and then I'm leaving you on your own. No, I'm going to come and keep praying for you. I'm come keep encouraging you. Come and ask how things are going and pray for you. Those who shepherd the flock of God are to provide oversight with good motives, we're warned. 1 Peter 5 says, listen, you don't, you don't become a leader in a church in order to become rich. You don't do it out of greed. You don't do it in a way because you want power and authority over people. No, we're to be examples to the flock, he says. Similarly with parents. He warns parents in Ephesians 6 in terms of our motives of how we do these things. He says, listen, parents, don't provoke your children to wrath. Because you're an authority figure in their life. You are the person who is correcting them often. Don't exasperate them. Don't wear them out. How do we do that? Well, there's one way is to do favoritism. Where you don't play equal and apply the same principles to everybody in the family. If one person gets favorable treatment, the other one does not receive favorable treatment. Let me tell you something. That'll really make some kids angry. For their whole life, probably. It's very hard to get over that. And to relieve them and forgive them for that. There's also another way, is that is when we, as parents, we say, just do as I say, not as I do. Kids see through that very quickly. Hypocritical living, saying, oh, do this, do this, and follow these principles of the Bible, and then you don't live them out yourself, and you don't ever admit that you're wrong, don't ever confess that that was wrong. So that when you live in a life of compromise yourself, and you're saying, okay, well, follow God's standards, they sort of see through that after a while. May I suggest to you that something very helpful in that situation is to bring the gospel into these conversations. The gospel says that what? When I have failed, I admit that I've failed. The gospel says I don't have a problem confessing the fact that I have broken God's 
uh, God's ways, and therefore I need to ask you to forgive me. And when we confront our children in that way and we humble ourselves, it's amazing how their anger can become so much less and diffused. And so I would just say here, here's some helpful advice. Do you know of somebody in your life that you know is starting to go off track? They may have said, oh yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, and oh yes, I'm committed to following his ways. And yet you see that person's life compromise after compromise. And you say to yourself, the Lord has laid it on my heart. I love them enough that I want to help come alongside them. I want to know them well enough to know what? why is that? Why are they content with this? Why is this going on and on and on? May I suggest you another important principle here that Nehemiah, I think, was helpful in living out before these people. Before you speak to somebody and correct them lovingly, is to ask yourself, listen, has that person seen in me, before I speak to them, the evidence that I love them enough to encourage them and take an interest in them before I just come and point out their faults to them? Because if all you're going to do is start off by saying, hey, listen here, fella, you got a problem in your life. You better watch this. If that's all they hear from us, and you say, well, I love them. I'm just speaking to them, honestly. What did Nehemiah do? He had 12 years of hard work and investment in the people of that city. They knew that he loved them. He had given up his life, his whole efforts for 12 years. And so I would just suggest to you, be cautious about pointing out sin if you have not previously invested in that other person generous amounts of encouragement and affirmation, which is another reminder for all of us. How about words of encouragement, words of affirmation? I appreciate you. I see this in your life. It encourages me. I thank God for you. Our motives need to be rooted in genuine concern for the work of sanctification in a life that's being transformed by the gospel. A gospel that says we're all in process. We're all loved by a God who's so patient, who's so willing to forgive our failings. And again, one more thought, one final thought I want to say here is Christ-like love, and I'm so thankful this is true, Christ's love for me is such that he does not sit back and watch as my life might slip off into the grip of compromise and complacency. He loves me too much to let me go. And just like that kind of love, Nehemiah is praying as he deals with these people, as he deals with these situations, he's asking God, God, you be aware of what's going on here. You be aware of what's my involvement in this person's life. I want to be interceding for these people. I hope you'll be interceding for each other. And that's what we're trying to create within our church family, is a praying for the members on a regular basis. If you're a member, then you'll be praying for other members of this church every day. Pray for a member or some members. And as you're praying for them, what is it? You're longing for God to be at work in their hearts, making them more into the image of Christ. It's a beautiful ministry when it goes on, and it does go on. And I've appreciated the way it goes on. And one of the best people in my life is, the, is my dear wife, who oftentimes will speak to me and make me aware of things I need to hear and that I need to be dealt with. I hope you have that kind of relationship with your spouse, if you are married, that you're willing to receive what they tell you in a way that you don't become so defensive that you say, well, I can't hear it. May God help us. Let's pray.
Lord, I pray that our love for you, which is weak, and it is full, uh, full of compromise, Lord. It's oftentimes failing and, and fairly uh, divided. But Lord, I pray that our love for you and the love we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, I pray that that would empower us to take a stand for your truth. That we might take a stand for your glory. We might take a stand for your honor. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be persistent and wise courageously taking a stand where needed. Not, Lord, so that we can be noticed and not because we are better than anybody else. Lord, sure, you know that. But, Lord, we take a stand for your glory and for the good of others that we know and love, that we might see the benefit of all those who will heed the call to be holy as you are holy. So, Lord, we pray that there might be a balance of love and affirmation and encouragement that we share with each other, so that we can be those who can offer words of correction where needed. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone who's here today who, is, who has heard the warning of the Holy Spirit, realizing that they themselves know that they have broken the laws of God, that they have guilt before a perfect and holy God who knows all about them, I pray, Lord, that they would be lovingly corrected today to come to Christ to hide in Christ, to find him to be the one who can make them right before God on the basis of faith and trusting what he did on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Lord, we pray that our time around your table today will encourage our hearts with the greatness of your patient love and your work of sanctification among your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We invite you to stand now at this time and to reflect on the wonders of what Christ